Um, my name is Carol Palmer, and I'm the director here. It's a great pleasure to have you here this evening for another lecture in our joint series with our colleagues at the uh, French Research Institute, IPO. Um, uh, this has been uh, now, it's been running for two years, actually, this series. We try and uh, do a lecture every, every month at the beginning of each month. Um, on a, on a variety of subjects to do with the, the modern and contemporary Levant. Um, it's my um, great pleasure this evening to have with us our colleagues from the French Institute, the, uh, Dr. Nordique Nouveau, who's going to be our discussant this evening and also to introduce the lecturer. So I will hand over to you. Thank you very much, Carol. So I will briefly introduce Dr. Philippe Bourmont. So, Philippe Romo is an historian of the Ottoman and Mandatory Middle East, based at Istanbul. Uh, his research is focused on the history of the medical profession in the Ottoman Empire, the history of inhalers, and the history of public and social problems. His current project focuses on the construction of public problems, especially tuberculosis and addictions, from the Fergon constitutional period of the Ottoman Empire into the Middle Eastern mandates. So his presentation tonight will be on assessing infectious risks in late Ottoman Jerusalem. And just before I get in the floor to Philip, I just want to announce a conference which will be held at the French Cultural Center next week on the 14th of uh, March by Abdul Hamid Al-Kayali, a colleague of, uh, of ours from the University of Jordan, and he will talk about late Ottoman Jerusalem through the eyes of the Hebrew press, a critical approach. So it will be on Tuesday, March 14th at 6 p.m. at the French Institute, and the conference will be in Arabic. So please feel Well, another round of thanks. Thanks to you all for coming here. Thanks for, to Carol Palmer and the team of uh, CBRL for welcoming me as well as you all tonight. And thanks, Noig, for uh, actually being such a great, great host. Um, so, well, I gave this presentation a rather bombastic uh, title. I just would like to uh, say what this lecture is not. It's not uh, a paper on the, by the way, booming history of insurance in the Middle East, which is fascinating for the historian, but it can be a tad bit uh, difficult to get into. Uh, and, well, I will focus on Jerusalem, but it's not limited to Jerusalem. I will by and large talk about cities in Palestine. Uh, and to begin, well, I will start with Jaffa, actually. Um, the, this is one of the foremost paintings of the uh, Davidian school, the disciples of Jacques-Henri David, the neoclassicist uh, painter, uh, French painter of the revolutionary and post-revolutionary era. And why do I present it? Well, because it is a story about risk or the lack thereof. And therefore, the perceptions of risk, the sense of danger that goes with it. Um, you may or may not be familiar with the story. So this, this uh, painting talks about an event that took place during the brief incursion of the French troops in the middle of the occupation of Egypt uh, from 1798 to 1801. Uh, it's 1799, all the way up to Akka, where they got beaten by both Ahmed Pasha al-Jazar and the plague. Uh, and, well, there is an agenda be behind this uh, painting because there had been rather substantiated rumors uh, carried by uh, Bonaparte's uh, foes, that at the moment of leaving Palestine and going back to Egypt, uh, Napoleon, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte had decided to have his soldiers stricken by the plague, who were hospitalized in Jaffa, poisoned, which would cast quite a shadow on his record vis-à-vis uh, -vis his uh, beloved army. 
So he had one of his, um, we wouldn't nearly say court painters, but he was, it was a bit more complicated than that, the Baron Gros, uh, realized that painting, which presented uh, another angle on uh, those events, though not in itself uh, criticizing the, uh, the, the claim, but saying how could Bonaparte have uh, had his men killed when he was ready to, just to sh reassure them to go and touch a soldier's bubo uh, in the midst of the plague, plague infection. So on in March 11th, uh, 1799, Bonaparte had it announced that, well, plague was not contagious, therefore soldiers should not be worried about the numerous cases of the plague striking the army, and therefore they should go business as usual. And to illustrate it, he went to um, one, it's said uh, to be a small room in the hospital that had been set up in the Armenian convent, uh, just outside of Jaffa, and touched the bubo of uh, one of his soldiers in front of uh, his uh, chief medicine, René Desjonettes, whom we see here, trying to hold him back. Um, and basically, this, uh, this was a way of carrying the message that Bonaparte had been a responsible public health informed chief to his troops, and one also who was caring and therefore could not be the, the kind of villain his uh, opponents made him to be. Now, picturally, it's an interesting uh, painting because, because it merges a number of <coughs> threads in the history of painting, um, neoclassicist uh, representation with all those different codes to represent the faces of this, uh, the plague stricken in, in the face of despair. People did not know how to cure the disease and there was, well, for bubonic plague, a significantly high of minimum 30% of uh, casualties among those who were uh, stricken. You have the sort of oriental, early orientalist uh, encoding with the, uh, the, the uh, bodies laying around, plus, of course, the representation of the city with the, the mosque in the, in the background. And the uh, already well-known code of plague representation, which had been assimilated in Western painting since at least uh, the period of uh, Nicolas Poussin in the 17th century. Uh, have uh, faces, bubos, tired bodies. All this was somehow merged into an earlier representation of the oriental city as being a health hazard, but at the same time as being one that could be mastered through um, knowledge of, well, medicine. Now, <coughs> the raison d'etre of the painting is actually that against Bonaparte's saying, it was actually still held at the time that the plague was contagious, could be communicated from men to men, although in an invisible fashion. And this invisibility inherent to uh, infectious diseases um, actually morphed into or was debated all through the, the 19th century and nurtured <coughs> not only <coughs> the works of clinicians, but also perceptions of danger that were being objectified into risks by uh, the, uh, the statistics elaborated by uh, clinicians. So my, my presentation here will be to try to trace various forms of uh, risk constructions, and I will not dwell uh, into the statistical part uh, of it because it would be a bit severe, <laughs> but to, f to focus on basically how people in the cities um, interpreted these risks and also how behaviors in the face of diseases were somehow 
explainable progressively with, let's say, more <clears throat> more technical knowledge of uh, the way uh, infectious diseases worked. Um, I will focus here on well three diseases that became uh, that came under the spotlight in medical and otherwise literature in the 19th century, cholera, uh, leprosy, and tuberculosis. But basically, I will go on and off because there, there were all, uh, all sorts of uh, infectious diseases that nurtured the sense that Jerusalem in particular, Palestinian uh, cities in general, were uh, dangerous, and that in order to uh, get rid of that danger, better understanding of how uh, the disease worked and uh, of uh, basically of statistics of risks uh, was produced. Now, I will uh, first start with the with cholera. First, because it was probably the uh, most um, violent type of risk epidemic. An epidemic, brutal risk, one that actually directly altered the uh, social and individual behaviors, and also because it is uh, somehow intellectually, epi uh, etiologically linked with uh, the plague here. Um, cholera was somehow, well, somehow had a shaping influence on the history of medicine in the Middle East because basically it was the, the first uh, major violent uh, epidemic to come to the Middle East when the plague started to wane in the region in the 1830s, 1840s. By uh, 1840, the uh, plague has virtually disappeared of the, from the Middle East where it used to be endemic with bouts of uh, epidemics. By uh, 1831, uh, the cholera had spread from uh, India to uh, Persia to Iraq to Syria and was already striking also in Europe. Cholera, like the plague, uh, basically is a disease that strikes briefly. It's uh, a matter of a few weeks. But very brutally, though actually with a lesser rate of mortality than the plague. Its, uh, it's bacillus gets transmitted uh, through uh, contact with... Sorry about that. It gets transmitted through contact through, uh, through excrements, which makes it actually rather uncommon to have direct contact. I mean, uh, it usually goes through infiltration, through water, which made it a lot harder to spot than, and to uh, rationalize than the plague, which has a complicated cycle involving fleas and rats, but somehow can be tr traced or seem to be traced to direct man-to-man -man contact of person-to-person -person contacts. <coughs> uh, so, as early as the 1850s, it was, um, it was already somehow uh, known, though not explained, that the water was a major factor in uh, carrying uh, cholera. And actually, measures were being taken accordingly, especially me measures affecting the organization of the city, uh, especially markets. Um, the main places of transmission of cholera are the well, the cistern, uh, the, the markets, uh, meat markets and, uh, uh, and um, grocers markets. Uh, and this being known led everywhere, including in the Ottoman Empire, to take measures to uh, stop market activities in times of cholera and establish a uh, sort of control of provisions. So by in the, during the major epidemic of 1865, for instance, the governor of Jerusalem had the markets in, 
Al-Wad and Khan Zayd in Jerusalem closed for fear this would help spread an epidemic which was already raging. Now, this took place in um, uh, how should I put this? Uh, a situation where medically cholera was still pretty much an intellectual problem. How do we explain cholera ahead of the germ theories, ahead of Pasteur and Koch and the like? Uh, people who went into uh, the microbiology of it and were able through it to describe the cycle vectors uh, of transmission. Cholera especially put the notion of contagion to a test because it uh, presented cases of healthy carriers, so people who were asymptomatic and would uh, be the, the vectors of uh, the disease because it also presented cases of contagion without contagion being visible because it was through infiltration, as I said. And so the physicians were hard put to say, okay, so what causes the disease? And this somehow boosted anti-contagionist theories in the mid-century uh, mid against the system of quarantines, which was very elaborate, uh, actually stifling for commerce. So there were heavy in interests against it, as Sylvia uh, Chifolo was able to show. Now, this, um, uh, this somehow uh, reflects, uh, this helps us reflect how people uh, were able to intellectualize the causes of disease at the time. If it's not contagion, then how does it work? Then there were just surmises out of observations, cumulative observations, statistics, and, well, basically, people accumulated factors. That is uh, what hygienism is, basically. We have a number of factors of... Um, hygienic danger, let us act against all of them at once because we don't know which one will be uh, efficient. For infectious diseases, which were later identified through a specific path of contagion, this uh, would prove to be a heavy investment, but one that would uh, actually produce lo lots of effect on the city and historians of the city in the 19th century have insisted on the role of uh, uh, cholera to producing norms of hygiene, uh, wider streets, uh, water, uh, water adduction systems, etc. These in Jerusalem largely remained at the state of a project because the city within the, within the war and until the second half of the century was extremely intricate in terms of not only housing, but also relationships of power. And so basically, more sanitary projects could only be envisioned on the periphery when the population started to settle outside of the city due to immigration. Now, <clears throat> The problem was not only in uh, Jerusalem or the Ottoman Empire at large that the path of the disease could not be traced. It was also that whatever info data there was, was fishy at best. And there was not only um, uncertainty about um, statistics, but also bad communication and uh, a communal pattern surrounding these statistics. Um, in, the, in the first place, it was somehow difficult to establish statistics when actually the family, uh, fearing that they should be confined at home if there was a case of cholera, would, if, as much as they could, avoid stating it out. out. But on top of that, in Jerusalem, in the 19th century, we have a, a process of uh, institution building 
um, multiplication of dispensaries, hospitals, following a communal pattern, a communal and national pattern. Usually, uh, religious communities were supported by uh, foreign states uh, to establish uh, hospitals, or actually foreign European states would establish hospitals, fund them for a certain community that would have free uh, services there, and well, then say, well, and everyone else can come, of, of course, but uh, provided they, they pay a fee. This created, uh, this actually did not create, but this pushed forward a, a <coughs> pattern of national and communal rivalries, one of whose effect was that, well, people were loath to actually give out their stats to, to the, in the public. You have a number of reports about uh, statistics coming out, especially from Jewish hospitals, which were usually more dependent on um, what you call it? Uh, on uh, financial uh, outside financial backers, non-national financial backers. But by and large, there was a pattern of uh, mutual secrecy and distrust to the extent that inside or outside of the community you could have vastly different figures. The French consul in Jerusalem, for instance, uh, states in 1865 that he has really big problems to assess the gravity of the, of the epidemic. Not only has he a problem to make a general assessment over the population of Jerusalem and the impact of the epidemic of, over the population of Jerusalem because he does not trust the Jeriday in Ufus, the uh, Ottoman census. On, on top of that, he says, if I look to what the uh, Mutasarif of Jerusalem says, then in the Latin community, we had 20, um, um, sorry, 20 deaths. If I trust inside uh, data, then we had 60 of them. Whom should I believe? All in all, he comes up with uh, an assessment of uh, uh, 1,059. That's precise for such an uncertain uh, demography, by the way. 1,059 deceased in Jaffa, which would be, which he assesses to one inhabitant out of seven, which is quite high for cholera but one out of 20 in Jerusalem, largely due, as uh, later physicians uh, would, uh, would show, to the fact that in Jerusalem people got their water out of cisterns, and because of this, uh, communication through infiltration were actually uh, not happening. <coughs> now, Beside these, um, these efforts to know the disease statistically, by the 1860s, of course, there was a wave of um, microscopic uh, studies in the footsteps of Pasteur and Koch, uh, Robert Koch, who would uh, discover in India the bacillus in uh, 1883. And after that, a better knowledge of Symptom of symptoms, but this knowledge of symptoms did not produce instant security. For once, once you had uh, an assessment of a symptom that could be traced to certainty about disease through microscopic uh, examination, then you produced a certain delay between the symptoms and the moment the symptom became suspicious and the results of the uh, laboratory examination, which could usually be around two days, which in uh, cholera term is a lot. Oops. <coughs> First, could actually, you know, dehydration could actually be a symptom of uh, cholera, but, well, I do hope this is not the case, but please, if I turn blue, tell me. Mm. <coughs> what is it? Are you drinking wine or? Vodka, of course. 
Well, after all that I said, should I trust water? Now, part of um, the problem was there was therefore a problem of traceability. Did you say that uh, traceability? Yes, um, which had all kinds of repercussions, including uh, political ones, because on the one hand, it is quite tempting, quite tempting when you have an epidemic that can be traced through space to say, well, this comes from the outside. And on the other hand, if you have stringent measures established to control individuals suspicious of the disease, then, well, you would have, um, uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Um, stowaways. Uh, people trying to go around the, uh, the obligations for information. So, on the one hand, the notion that the disease circulated somehow reinforced the municipal unit, which actually came into being uh, after the 1850s, first municipality, the Ottoman Empire is established in, I speak under the authority of uh, Dr. Palestine Naini, 1858. The date of the foundation of uh, the municipality of Jerusalem, I will not dare to go into. Between 63 and 67. It's Something like this. But I knew that this was fishy, so. And the municipality was largely an element of devolution in order to enforce the Tanzimat's uh, Ottoman reforms. In particular, devolution of such uh, items weighing on the budget as providing for healthcare. Now, providing for healthcare would be to control, uh, to, to provide a hospital, but also to control meat markets, etc. All kind of things that were closely uh, associated with cholera. It would also be to have a municipal physician in charge of registering all the cases of cholera and establishing measures of disinfection in the houses that, where someone had been stricken. <coughs> which could, of course, be used in all kinds of fashion. At some point, for instance, at the American colony, folk uh, from inside the Protestant communities, it said, uh, br brought two people who had died on the way uh, to Jaffa in his uh, chariot and left them there for them to bury uh, because they were suspicious of having cholera. And the American colony said, we don't want them keep them, otherwise we'll uh, get cholera. The guy went to the governor of Jerusalem saying, uh, this is, these guys de uh, depend on the Protestant community, so they should be uh, given to the American colony uh, for them to, to, to bury these people. Uh, actually, this was a way of making the American colony a major healthcare provider by the, uh, the time, just ahead of uh, World War I, uh, completely inactive. Now, these, uh, these individual patterns go against a sense of community that comes along with the fact that disease comes from the outside, uh, and especially fr uh, from foreigners. For instance, you have a mini scare in September 1911 in Jaffa when a Russian vapor comes and someone sneaks out of it, or is actually sneaked out of it by the captain, with something that is presumed to be cholera and is or isn't. This is probably a matter for debate, but since he is immediately isolated, the disease does not spread or not immediately to the city. So cholera is a disease that actually produces institutions, that leads these institutions to explore for risks, but at the same time that is capable of uh, creating isolation without the, within the city and therefore a sense of division or of mutual distrust. So it's quite complicated to analyze. I'm still puzzled. It brings people together as much as it brings them against one another. <coughs> now, Leprosy is quite a different affair because it is essentially a disease that is 
now known, as far as I know, to be contagious uh, to a very limited extent. Um, Intrauterine uh, uh, transmission is very rare. But at the same time, since it is a disease that is not very contagious, <coughs> then contagion usually happens among people who consort uh, together most of the time. Family is therefore potentially a, places, uh, a place of contagion. Now, leprosy is interesting to us because for some reason it remained attached to cities in Palestine in the 19th century and in fact healthcare for lepers expanded. And so what were the perception of that presence? Were people aware of a danger, were they aware that it was actually a very limited risk of transmission? Well, the various sources that I was able to uh, find, and I realized that I forgot my little point of sources, um, which basically are of a consular missionary, Ottoman archives, and uh, Palestinian pr press. Um, especially during the uh, second uh, Ottoman constitutional period and the early mandate. Um, but, well, basically, they don't agree, which actually uh, does not seem to matter so much because basically the disease does not strike epidemically. <coughs> but it seems to affect the relationship between people and the lepers, and the, the leprosy stricken. So uh, the, um, the bacteria responsible for uh, leprosy was identified by 1873, but its capacity to communicate the disease remained largely a doubt. So again, you have a, an intellectual problem. How do we explain transmission, even when we know uh, microbiologically and through the, um, all kinds of environmental studies, the, the context of, uh, of uh, transmission, even the way of transmission, even though that I'm not also certain. So, to be quick, the, um, the uh, putting outside of uh, inhabited concentration of lepers dates is a rather ancient in the Ottoman Empire, probably later than in uh, Europe where it's 14th century matter. But in, um, in Palestine, three uh, towns hosted leper lodgings, let's say, more than leper houses, in the Ottoman period, Ramle, Nablus, and Jerusalem, and the um, the uh, leper house in Jerusalem is said to have been founded uh, in, under the reign of uh, Selim the First, so that's 1512 to 1520, by a wakf, which I still have to inquire. I was uh, chatting to, uh, early on with a friend of mine at the Ministry of Wakf in Ankara, who has specialized into the wakf of Jerusalem, and Duzam Hane, what is it? No, she, didn't, she hadn't heard about that. So this remains to be checked, but apparently the, the setting aside of uh, the setting by the side of uh, the, uh, the lepers is an ancient practice. According to um, the, witness, the physician witnesses of the 19th century, the disease was by then considered uh, largely rural. Uh, disease present especially in the Be'ah region of nowadays Lebanon, or uh, in Safat and around, and in the hills of central Palestine. Not so much in the cities. However, well, all attempts at um, numbering the lepers 
fell short of reliability because it was largely known that most of the families took care of the lepers. So if you wanted to establish on the basis of institutions statistics, that was not a very efficient way. <clears throat> Moreover, popular opinions on the disease diverge. In 1845, the French consul in Damascus claims that the disease is not contagious and is indeed known not to be so, to the extent that the population of the city, where you also have a leper house, frequently touch and nourish the lepers. Yet by 1874, a British report uh, on the contrary, holds uh, cont contagion to be common knowledge. A French physician who uh, visits the Ottoman leper house, the, uh, the governmental leper house of Jerusalem in 1888, says the same, saying, uh, moreover, that the lepers practice self-discipline. They are known to be always uh, lepers uh, by Zion Gate and Jaffa Gate, uh, begging, but, he says, they um, keep away from the, the people who cast their arms uh, into uh, trials from a distance. However, these, uh, these practices seem very much like uh, uh, a posterior reconstruction of landscape. What we do know, though, is that in the, from the 1870s onwards, two leper houses, uh, new leper houses, were established in Jerusalem. One was established actually in 1867 by uh, German philanthropists and then taken care of by uh, a Protestant sect, the Moravian Bro Brothers. It is still the, uh, the origin of nowadays uh, leper and other rarely contagious diseases in Sorda between uh, Ramallah and, uh, and Birzeit. It is uh, actually a disciplinary environment hinting to belief in contagion. Uh, Especially the, the rules of the house prohibit physical contact with outsiders and unions among um, sick people of the two sexes. On the other hand, the governmental leper house established, re-established between 1874 and 1880 on the basis of the earlier WAGF, I presume, uh, on an order of the, uh, the Mutasarif of Jerusalem, was largely <coughs> an autonomous uh, endeavor. The, um, the lepers were given a certain stipend per year to uh, distribute among themselves, and otherwise, well, they, they would have their own revenues to live on. On top of this uh, autonomy, uh, marriage is said there to be the uh, goal of everyone and these are actually the lepers that uh, are waiting and uh, uh, gathering money uh, from passers-by at, at the gates of Jerusalem since the, uh, the lepers in the German leper houses are forbidden to go out. By 1915, uh, in a German uh, missionary publication, a Belgian uh, priest explains, tries to explain this difference in theoretical terms, claiming that on the one hand, the German leprosy was founded on the notion that <coughs> the disease could be transmitted uh, in her hereditary fashion. So it made sense therefore, to prohibit marriages, unions, etc. On uh, the, the Ottoman leper house, on the contrary, considered the disease to be only contagious, not hereditary, but so feebly contagious that it was not an issue 
to establish constant surveillance over the, the lepers. <clears throat> so here we have a maze of incoherence on a disease that really seems to escape uh, in spite of uh, better knowledge of infectious disease, of infectious diseases, the understanding of the medical profession and researchers. Yet, what is interesting is that these lepers become a feature of uh, Jerusalem city life until the Brits in uh, the early uh, occupation of Jerusalem, I think it's pre-mandate 1919, decide to gather all the lepers, including those among the, the, the immigrants, into the German leper house, better organized, etc. So this reflects more of a drift towards health uh, care and uh, integrated health care and health policy than actually uh, better knowledge of the disease, which had not radically evolved through the period of the war, I guess. <clears throat> now, tuberculosis is qu yet quite a different story because basically it seems to be a disease that develops and once th one that actually is taken as a <coughs> inf infectious risk very differently by a different set of actors. Okay, quickly about the, that, that disease. Tuberculosis is, well, the one, uh, the, no, probably one of the calamities, one uh, the social calamity of uh, the industrial era, the 19th century. Uh, it develops among the poorer population of industrial cities, especially, although it actually strikes across classes, it has a strong uh, social bias, and it is usually associated with uh, what are also seen as social evils of the uh, industrial uh, poorer classes, such as alcoholism, for instance. Now, uh, at the same time, it is a, communi a directly communicable uh, disease, one that creates, uh, at the same time, intense fear and yet not instant panic because it's, it doesn't kill quickly the way cholera does, but probably takes <coughs> a much larger swath of people in the long run. Um, by the 1840s, it was still considered that the Middle East was immune to it. Researchers might say we, ha we, we see in, uh, in <coughs> texts of Latin antiquity diseases that look like uh, tuberculosis, but physicians in the 1840s said, don't go to Italy, which is already, um, already stricken by uh, tuberculosis to uh, get better. Rather go to Mount Lebanon, for instance. Yet, the disease progressively appears in statistics over the uh, second half of the, in the 19th century. For instance, in 1873, in the report of the Jewish hospital mayor Rothschild in Jerusalem, uh, which is quite obviously a hospital for the poor, uh, poor Jewish immigrants, 370 uh, People are jobless out of 550 patients for that year. Well, you do have uh, one case of the disease. Yet, generally speaking, this seems indeed to be a fairly rare disease. By the 1890, the disease has become enough of a, an issue for the Arab press the, the Arab intellectual press, to dwell on it and generally to uh, present it 
as a disease that comes with immigrants, or rather re-immigrants, especially Arabs who have gone to uh, the Americas and gone back impoverished, and who are actually contaminating the local population, especially through uh, uh, all the tendernesses and uh, practices of uh, family and social customs. <clears throat> yet it is quite clearly seen as a disease that comes uh, from the outside, yet by uh, the, um, uh, the early mandate period, it is already known that the disease as assessed by the British power, is rare in Palestine, except in Nablus, where you already have a concentration of, of patients that is enough to, to self-reproduce. So it's no longer a disease of the immigration, even though, at the time, all the people who think about organizing, uh, uh, organizing the uh, protection of Palestine uh, on the model of Elis Island, being a Zionist or, or Arab Palestinians, uh, focus on excluding tubercular patients from entering uh, Palestine. Now, from there, you have very divergent trajectories. By 1920, uh, Zionist experts start asking for senatorials, for, for uh, Jews, to take care of, of a tubercular patient. Probably so do uh, Arab physicians, at least they do so over the 1930s, but by 1946, the nascent uh, structures of the Arab medical profession in Palestine complains that you have three Jewish sanatoriums in Palestine, but Arab patients have to be sent to the sanatoriums of Hannes <coughs> or Ma'amiltain uh, in Lebanon to be taken care of because the, uh, the Brits haven't considered this risk to be significant or to be one that should be a public health priority. And they say, and we have, um, here I'm quoting a recent article by Sandy Sofian, we have 50,000 Arab patients of tuberculosis, 2,000 of which die each year, yet nothing is done. Now, how do, can we account for this discrepancy? Well, part, part of it is probably the result of that notion that tuberculosis is a disease of the immigrants, even though already by the early mandate it has been demonstrated that it was no longer just that. But another factor has to be uh, taken into account, which is the building of health policies. Already in uh, 1911, Dr. Elias Halabi, in a description of tuberculosis in Jerusalem, uh, notes that well, basically, on the one hand, the, uh, the municipality of Jerusalem is doing so little to improve the conditions of housing, which would in itself be a direct means to improve uh, the capacity of uh, uh, the poorer population of uh, Jerusalem to somehow resist tuberculosis. He says there are far too little efforts of urbanism of urban planning against tuberculosis, but at the same time, we have a hard time convincing people that, well, something can be done about, about tuberculosis, and here incriminates uh, beliefs, alternative beliefs about the etiology, the causes of the disease, saying, well, they, they keep on claiming that it's the noon, etc that these are irrational uh, or supernatural or whatever causes. Um, I think we should not take too lightly this overpowering discourse of physicians about uh, diseases and their causes because they 
somehow all come uh, up against it. They all end up saying, well, we're doing our best, but there's a whole work of education. And people believe in, uh, well, believe in other explanations. And so basically there is a, or, uh, therefore a different conception of what risk is, or uh, what produces danger in the end is disease. But what creates the risks, how it is constructed from certain, uh, uh, certain gestures, certain practices into uh, an, an effect as disease is completely different. And this is where uh, basically uh, physicians find themselves in a, whether Arab or Jews, etc., in a, a communicational problem. Now, having said this, what seems to be uh, the matter with tuberculosis is largely a colonial issue. By 1912, Zionists, Arab physicians, foreign physicians were already integrating to produce a certain knowledge about disease in Jerusalem, collating data, communicating statistics, which, as I said, was not all that obvious, and establishing priorities. You have especially a sort of protocolonial uh, mission sent by the, um, the Institute for Maritime and Colonial uh, Hygiene in Hamburg, which is the Institute of Colonial Medicine in Germany, uh, in 1912, with a priority to malaria, but they also give some attention to uh, tuberculosis. And yet, in spite of, in spite of that work, the Brits, who actually gathered all the, those data, tried to say, okay, this <coughs> is reliable data on malaria, on tuberculosis. This is too little a sample. But they, they based themselves on these references after the war. Well, the Brits would not invest in tuberculosis. And I think this, is, this really has to do with the notion that this was too expensive. <coughs> Uh, you didn't actually really get cured, or only temporarily, or, well, you still somehow carried the germ. <coughs> and most of the patients had to be taken care for lengthy periods of time uh, in sanatoriums, which cost lots of money, and with only partial hope that they would become productive again. Yet, already by 1910, uh, the Zionist movement had established sick funds, and this would be a basis to actually take care of uh, tubercular patients in the long run. The same did not, at any time under the mandate, uh, exist for the, um, for the uh, Arab Palestinian patients, which threw back the, uh, the onus of paying for uh, sanatorium patients on the Palestinian government, which constantly had a um, less state policy, no intervention, devolution to uh, volunteer organizations. So because of this, in, by the end of the mandate, you have populations which are extremely different from the perspective of disease, and especially of that one disease, tubercular, and in general, chronic diseases, not so much because of environmental circumstances, not so much even because the, uh, there had been no effort in urban planning. The Brits had actually, uh, actually got the plans from the late Ottoman period and enforced them in, in the new neighborhoods of Jerusalem, but because of a colonial decision that this was too expensive a disease to take care of. Mm. Okay, <coughs> so what I've tried to show through uh, this presentation uh, was first that 
already uh, early on, and actually already through the, uh, the uh, trans-Mediterranean quarantine uh, surveillance <laughs> system uh, established in the 18th century between Europe and the various cities of the, the Middle East, you had a work of collection of data which was used to, uh, well, to bring forward uh, what? Oh. Clint forgot. Well, it's just way too late. Oh. So these were. This is a, a picture of the um, the lepers outside of the German uh, leper house. So basically, well, this is very much a contrived picture, especially since they are out outside. Um, what would be interesting would be if we had pictures of the personnel, which were deaconesses. And one of the main issues for, for healthcare uh, across the Ottoman Empire was actually to find uh, non-physician uh, non staff. But here, well, basically, it's pretty much a postcard picture. And well, this was just to illustrate the knowledge, the post-Koch, uh, knowledge about uh, tuberculosis in, in the Middle East, which was scattering, uh, sc uh, gathering and producing um, actually an imagination <coughs> of invisible risks in its term after cholera. Uh, but somehow did not, uh, did not manage to uh, produce health policy while Tuberculosis in Europe was, and in the West was largely one of the founding stones of the welfare state. You had to have global system to account for uh, chronic, chronic treatments, the most deadly of which at the time was tuberculosis. Excuse me? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm hearing voices. Uh, that must be the CBRL factor turning into Joan of Arc at uh, my conference. Um, okay, so what I wanted to show uh, very briefly before I really, really abuse your patience is first that, well, there was an effort very similar to what happened, though with probably less systematic means to collate data, establish a posteriori, a, a posteriori risks uh, for infectious diseases. But this, this somehow came up against not only the communal organization of society, but the communal organization of healthcare. And this remained true thr through the mandate period. The difference being that the Department of Health of the <coughs> Palestine government considered that, well, together with the scientists, actually, diseases knew no uh, uh, racial border, no community border, and so they had to collate general information. Actually, they've left us a number of uh, quite rich uh, reports year by year of the, all the, that was going on in medicine in the, the Palestine mandate. So, you had the wherewithal to establish, based on figures, okay, sort of yielding to the belief in, in stats, but the, the people at the time certainly, certainly convinced that stats were a tool to better policy. There were the wherewithal to prioritize. However, colonial situation was largely what blocked this. And Actually, the short moment in the late Ottoman period, during the, uh, during the uh, constitutional period, 1908 to 1913, 1914, uh, where actually people started complaining about the municipalities not registering their needs, physicians pressing the matter, etc., shows that it was something that was largely inherent to the organization of politics. Second thing, the, um, 
the infectious risk was somehow prolonging a long tradition, a long imagery of uh, the city as being unsanitary, especially uh, cities as is described by the Orientalist gaze. Somehow, physicians were the prolongers of uh, the Orientalist gaze, and they gave to it um, tools of analysis, not only at the micro microscopic level, but also across the organization of the city. And so, hygienism became uh, the discourse, especially during the mandatory period, but the, um, the political conclusion of it were still determined by financial factors. 